Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church today. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're our guest, a special welcome to you. When you came in, you had to move some papers on your seat to sit down, and inside the offering envelope was a card that looks like this. I'm telling this to our guests primarily today because if you'll give us your name and your home address, put it in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of the service, we'll send you in the mail uh, some some coupons for some free Chick-fil-A food. It's our way of saying thanks for being with us. If you're a regular attender, give us your name and your email address, and you'll be prepared to take some next steps at the end of our message. That'll be obvious when we get there. But guest or regular attender, on the back, there's a place for your prayer requests and comments, things we can celebrate with you or lift up to God for you on your behalf. We're glad to do that. Hey, you've joined us for the second week of our message series called The elephant in the room. So I have an elephant with me. This is one that last week I explained I received from Pastor James John in India, our partner over in Kerala. And uh, he runs a uh, church, a church planting ministry, as well as an orphanage where uh, all the girls, over 40 of them in that home are cared for. Uh, Their clothing, their food, their shelter, their education is paid for by people in this church. And over the last several years, our church has built out a campus for them. And So in India, when they want to say thank you, when they want to give you a big gift, especially if there's not a lot of money available, they give you a a hand-carved wooden elephant like this because uh, it's the biggest thing in India. And so the small miniature version represents the big thing, and it's a representation of their love and affection for you. I have several of these from James uh, on my, uh, my shelf in my office, but in America, the elephant doesn't quite carry the same meaning. And today in the message series, we're talking about the elephant in the room. And what we mean is that big thing that everybody kind of knows is there, but nobody wants to address directly. And so this happens where you work, perhaps. There'll be some dynamic. There's an employee that everybody knows needs to be dealt with, but for whatever reason, they're not being dealt with. Or there's a dynamic that needs to be addressed, but nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody knows about it, but it's not there. And you may have a friend who is married, and you as an outside observer, and everybody else can look into their marriage and see things, see it and clearly needs to be addressed, but it's not being addressed. Well, those things are the elephant's in the room. And so starting last week and this week and for the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're talking about areas of life and areas of church life where the elephant is there and it's awkward to talk about and sometimes it goes unaddressed. So we're addressing them. Last week we spoke about money and the church and today I want to talk with you about hypocrisy and the church or hypocrites in the church. I'm reminded of the two girls who were having lunch and one says to the other, my boyfriend is such a cheat and a liar. I've been going out with a guy for nearly a year, and not once did he mention that he was married. And so the friend says, oh, that's terrible. And the girl kicks back in, and she says, yeah, and I wouldn't have known anything about it if my husband hadn't mentioned something about knowing him at our conversation last night over dinner. So hypocrisy is one of those things that you can see in other people, but it's hard to see in yourself. It's like pride. It's like greed. You see it, and when you see it, you know it, but it's easy to see in others. It's hard to see in yourself. The word hypocrisy, by the way, comes, or hypocrite, comes from an ancient Greek word, the word they used for actor. Uh, Actors were called hypocrites. It wasn't a negative term at all. It was just a a neutral term, and hypo is under and kritos uh, refers to meaning. So the under meaning, there was always a meaning under the thing. And so actors were putting on words and actions and emotions that weren't their own. They were acting them out. And when the Greeks came along, they had a disdain, or the Romans came along, they had a disdain for Greek actors. And so the word hypocrite took on a negative connotation uh, during the Roman era. And you see Jesus in the New Testament talking to a group of people, and he calls them hypocrites. What he's saying is, you're actors. You're actors in the negative sense. This isn't real. The word hypocrite is kind of opposed often to the word sincere, also an original Greek word. It's the root of the word sincere, two words sincere. It literally means without wax. In the ancient times, sculptors would sculpted in marble, and every once in a while there'd be a hairline fracture. They'd go a little too deep, and a dubious sculptor would melt wax and put it over top of that hairline fracture or that hole, and, and they would cover it up, and they would sell the statue as whole. 
but sometimes they weren't sincere. They weren't without wax. So you had to look for that. When it comes to hypocrites and the church, this is a big deal. I'll tell you that the number one thing that I hear people say to me as a barrier to their engagement with church is there's too many hypocrites in the church. When my parents first came to Jesus, they did not grow up in church. They didn't have a heritage in church. And so when they first came to, Je- uh, to Jesus and started attending church and they started engaging their very large families, the most frequent thing they heard Well, that's good for you guys, but those hypocrites in the church really frustrate me. And sometimes if you're only around church people, maybe you don't hear that. But a few years ago, a group called the Barna Group got together and they did a big survey. That's what they do. They survey things around religion and church. And they asked a bunch of non-Christian people who identified as non-Christian and who weren't associated with the church, what were the reasons that they were not engaging church? Like, what were the primary reasons? And so they came up with a bunch of reasons. And when this study came out, pastors were really eager to look at it because if you can understand what somebody's objections are, maybe you can engage them on the objections and turn their objections around, right? But to most pastors' chagrin and disappointment, none of the top six things that people said were why they did not engage church had anything to do with belief or God or Jesus. In fact, most of them said, we like Jesus, We just don't like church people. So in the top three reasons why people didn't want to go to church in a survey from the Barna Group, in the top three, there were two big conversation points for us. At 87%, a top six reason why people did not want to engage church was people in church are judgmental. People in church are judgmental. That's the perception out there. And so when people who don't go to church, don't claim to have a relationship with Jesus, were surveyed, they said Christians are judgmental at 87%. And at 85%, just two points less, they said that Christians were hypocritical. The church was hypocritical. And people who went to church were hypocritical. It had nothing to do with belief, the validity of the scripture, the morality of Christianity. It had to do with the way Christians engage the people around them, and the perceptions about that. It reminds me of what Gandhi, the famous Indian leader, said about Christianity. He said, I love your Jesus. I just don't like your Christians. That's what he said. This is a big deal. Number one thing I hear from people is, I've been hurt. I've been frustrated. I've been disappointed by the hypocrites in the church. When I was in high school, I was on a bit of a spiritual journey and really engaging my faith, really exploring. And it was the late 80s. And in the late 80s, I don't know if those of you that were alive will remember this, but from about 85 to about 91, there was a series. It seemed like every couple months, there was a new news story about some high-profile Christian who had some kind of a hidden thing, and they were being revealed. There was money, there was power, there was sex, there was all kinds of things that were happening, and it seems like one major public leader after another was being toppled. And I remember having my faith shaken just a bit as I watched people engage the conversations of what was going on as around us, and they were saying, effectively, are all Christians hypocrites? Is that what's going on here? This is a big deal. You have friends right now who are not in church, and if you were to talk to them about it, within a few minutes of that conversation starting, they would say to you, there's just so much hypocrisy. There's so many people who claim to be Christians who don't act Christian. And for some of them, it's left them scarred, not just disappointed in an objective sense, but they have had a personal experience, and it's left them scarred as somebody who they thought was supposed to act like a Christian didn't act like a Christian to them. So this is a big deal. And we can put our heads in the sand and act like it's not a major obstacle to people engaging what we offer here and engaging the basic claims of the gospel. But the truth is, is hypocrites and hypocrisy are a major stumbling block in our culture. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to address the elephant in the room. All right? Now, when I think about hypocrites, I think about the political spectrum as well. 
because politics and religion, it seems, to elevate people to some kind of status. And I'm reminded of the politician who was talking about his opponent. And he said this of his opponent. My opponent is such a hypocrite. He's the kind of guy that would go to the redwood forest and cut down a tree and then climb up on the stump of the redwood tree he had just cut down and talk about how he's all for conservation, right? Hypocrisy is obvious. So if you want to follow along in your notes... You can follow along with nine statements, nine things to us, for us to talk about, nine observations as we think about hypocrisy in the church. And I'm not necessarily dealing with all this in a linear fashion. I'm not building an argument. These are just nine observations I've had as I've had to think about my engagement as a Christian and the constant objection I hear, and maybe even you, maybe somebody in this room today has this basic objection, all right? So number one, here's the first thing for us to say. Real Christians are real sinners. Real Christians are real sinners. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ is the only organization I'm aware of that in order to be a part of it, to be a member, you have to admit you're a sinner. And so sinners are in the church. Some of us are saved by grace, but our entire sinful nature hasn't been wiped away. Christians, to put it bluntly, still sin. When one of Jesus's primary followers, the apostle John, had gotten up in age, he was in charge of several churches in what we call Asia Minor, and he was in charge of all of those churches, and he wrote letters to them, and three of them we have in our Bible called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, third letter, three letters of John to these churches. Well, in the first letter of John, in 1st John, um, that's the first letter, chapter 1, verse 9. John writes some words that are pretty peculiar. Now, these letters he's writing are written to Christians. They're not written to non-Christians. They're not written to non-churched people. And so in 1 John 1 and 9, he says these words, if we confess our sins, he's writing to Christians. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. Why would John write to Christians that if we confess our sins, God will forgive our sins? Well, because John knew something that pastors know, that people who hung around church know, that people who've been a Christian for any length of time at all know. Christians sin. We do. Now, theologians love to uh, create words that have specific meanings. And for a theologian, these words that they use aren't meant to impress anybody. That's not the goal. But words have meaning, and when you understand the meaning, clarity can come, and sometimes with clarity comes power. So I want to give you three words that theologians use to talk about the, uh, the process by which God connects us to himself. And in these three words, some of them maybe you've heard, in these three words, there's some information to know, but there's some power to gain as well. So when a believer or when a, when a sinner turns their life over to Jesus, we would say takes next step A or becomes a Christian or gets born again, that moment when they acknowledge that God is God and they're not, when that happens, theologians have a term to describe what happens in that moment. It's the word justification. That person has been justified. It's a legal term where God looks at you and says, I see the sin that you're guilty of, but I declare you not guilty. That's justification. I wipe away the penalty of your sin. Jesus takes on the penalty. God's grace is substituted into your life by the power of the Spirit, and you are now justified with Christ. That happens at the moment of salvation. You're done. It, you're in. It's good. There's another term they use, though, and, it, and it's on the kind of other end of the spectrum. They talk about the idea that in heaven, we're going to get a glorified body, glorification, justification, glorification. Now, glorification, the word glory, simply put, means the light is shining bright. So God's glory is God's light. When God is glorified, his light is brighter. When we're glorified, the light of God purifies us completely, and everything dark in us goes away, theologians tell us. So you're justified on the front end, and on the back end from God, you get glorified. You get made perfect. Now, glorification happens in heaven. 
You're not glorified on earth. You're not made perfect. All the darkness isn't wiped away on earth. That happens in heaven. Salvation, the theologians call it the order of salvation, begins near justification, and it kind of culminates in glorification. So what happens between the moment you commit your life to Christ and then you're connected with Christ in eternity, when you're justified and you're glorified? What happens in between? Well, they have a word for that too. Justification, glorification, sanctification. It's the process by which a justified person gets made more and more into the image of God. It's a process of growth and discipleship. It's a journey that God takes you on. Because the sinful nature that has been forgiven still is at war with the work of God going on in your life. Christians sin. And sometimes otherwise good Christians do very stupid things. And it begs the question, when a Christian sins, is he or she a hypocrite? Is that what's going on there? I think most of us would be uncomfortable with that. At least most of us that are Christian would be uncomfortable with that because you know, even as I talk about this, you know, you know, don't you? You know the implication. If you're a Christian and I say Christian sin, that means you sin. It means I sin. You know, it'd be fair for me to start today's conversation with saying, hello, my name is Ben and I'm a hypocrite. That's a little harsh, isn't it? I don't think I'm a hypocrite, but the truth is there have been seasons in my life when the way I believed and what I know to be true didn't always line up with my actions. Real Christians sin. And it's impossible to have the conversation about hypocrites in the church without acknowledging that we have to come to this conversation with a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of honesty, because in the history of the church for the last couple thousand years, there seems to be seasons where hypocrisy was at a high. That is, followers of Jesus seem to not pay much attention to the kinds of things Jesus said his followers were supposed to be and do. So Christians are real sinners. And the truth is, is that for most Christians in the room, if we wanted to be kind of legalistic about it, there were moments in your life when hypocrisy was a part of your journey. So we all have vested interest in this conversation. Number two, when I think about hypocrisy in the church, I think about something from Jesus's perspective. So what Jesus wants is, is an authentic heart, not an outward show. And this gets at the heart of the definition of a hypocrite, an actor. Not somebody who's putting on the actions of morality, here and there, and managing the perception you have of them. But for Jesus, a relationship with Jesus is supposed to be something that happens inside the heart when God declares you just, you've been justified. And then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart. And so God begins working on the inside, and that has fruit on the outside. God does not say, get clean, Get holy, act right, and when you're there, then you can have a relationship with me. That's the complete opposite of the gospel. The gospel says, come with your brokenness, your hurt, all of that. Come with your sin, present it to Jesus, and accept the work that Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection as the only vehicle by which you can have a relationship with God. Not the works you've done, not getting cleaned up but literally presenting it to him, and then God exchanges his righteousness for your ugliness. And so for Jesus, the work happens on the inside and is supposed to then work on the outside. The problem is is that sometimes you can fake the outside. And so when Jesus, in the book of Matthew, was engaging a group of religious people, here's what he said of them. Hypocrites or actors For you are like whitewashed tombs. Think about that. It's a tomb. It represents death. But you painted it white. You prettied it up. You know, you, you lined it with marble. You made it look pretty. But the truth is, it represents death. You're beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurities. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy 
and lawlessness. So when Jesus confronted the gap between the inside and the outside, he called it out. So hypocrisy is a big deal for Jesus. It's a big deal for people outside the church. We all have a vested interest, and it's a big deal for Jesus. Now, on number three, we begin to hit pay dirt here. Ready? Jesus doesn't want to be an acquaintance. He wants to be Lord. When I try to think about all the conversations I've had over the years with people who struggled with hypocrites in the church, and I can relate to that. I've struggled some with that myself. I look in the mirror. I struggle with the hypocrite I see on occasion in the mirror. When I think about it, though, one of the things I want to say to people is that language matters. Language matters. I take, for instance, the word Christian. The word Christian can have a variety of meanings. So many of you Christians, my uncle told me once, are hypocrites. I didn't know if the you there was plural inclusive of me or you somehow detached from me. I let it lay there. I didn't want to engage it at that moment. But so many of you, and I, and I thought, now what does he mean by the word Christian? Let's think about the ways that word can be used. Uh, the word Christian can be used in the sense of saying, um, I'm a part of a nation that primarily practices Christianity, as opposed to one that primarily practices Hinduism or, or Islam. So I am Christian kind of geopolitically or socially. It, it, it can mean that my family has a heritage of Christian engagement. So I'm Christian in the sense of this is my heritage. We can use it in the sense of the sentence, a good Christian woman. Now, we can mean by that a true adherent to the follow to the teachings of Jesus and somebody who's committed their life to him. Or we can mean something that is a pretty moral and upstanding person as well. In American literature, it was often used in the second way, just an upstanding person. So what does the word Christian mean? Can I tell you something that you may not have thought about before? In the church, in our church, not everybody who's here is a Christian in the technical sense of the word. A Christian who has said, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Only the work that Jesus has accomplished can save me. Only the grace of God applied to my life by faith can save me. In that technical sense, not everybody who goes to church is a Christian. This shouldn't shock you. This was true in Jesus' day as well. Not everybody who was associated with Jesus was really his follower. There were crowds around him, and they weren't always his follower. And for me, one of the scariest passages in the New Testament, the one that when I'm reading it, it's like I've been going down the interstate at 65 miles an hour and somebody puts a big old speed bump right in the middle of the road. That's kind of what the impact of this passage is for me. In Matthew's gospel, where Matthew writes the story of Jesus, he quotes Jesus as saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I say, depart from me, I never knew you. So there's going to be a day, Jesus says, where people who are associated with Jesus, enough to call him Lord, Lord, even did some stuff that looked very Lord, Lord-like, they're not really with the Lord. So when I think about the bigger picture of hypocrisy, I think about the fact that the church isn't just full of Christians. Not everybody in church is a Christian. A famous evangelist of 120 years ago or so named Billy Sunday, he had been a baseball player and quite popular, and he committed his life to Christ, got baptized, and dropped out of baseball and picked up preaching. But he kept his kind of flair and, and zing, his histrionics. He was really, really theatrical and one of his famous statements is this, is that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. So you can go to church, but it doesn't make you a Christian. The problem is, is for people who make church a part of their lives, we all get lumped in together. That's both a problem and it's an opportunity. I'm actually glad that not everybody who comes to our church is a Christian. The church is meant to be a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. It's not where all the right people get together and have their club. Now, 
the church invisible, the big C church, God's church, is made up of only Christians. So in that sense, practicing hypocrites, careless uh, hypocrites who don't seem to have, they don't belong to the big C church. God weeds that out. However God does it, that's on the Lord. But the small C church, local churches and the visible church, of course there are hypocrites here. And there are adulterers and liars and thieves and greedy people. There are. They're here in the room. Ladies, hide your purse. You don't know who you're sitting near. They may come after it. It's just true. It's the nature of the church. And I'm thrilled about this. We built this church in part so that people who did not have a relationship with God, who had other stuff in their life, could come and explore the claims of Jesus, hear the gospel, be loved while that was happening, even with their stuff, and perhaps take seriously the claims of Jesus, respond to the Spirit's prompting, and give their lives over to him. We built the church with that in mind. We also built it for Christians who aren't yet perfect. They don't have it all together. And sometimes, if they're honest, they would say, Hi, my name is Ben, and I'm a hypocrite. I don't always live up to what I know I need to do. We built a church for growing Christians and for not yet Christians because we're a hospital. We, we don't blame people who come in our building because they're sinners. What we do is we try to challenge them with who Jesus is and what he can do. And we ask God then to take the Holy Spirit and apply that truth to a person's heart so that they come into a relationship or they grow in a relationship. Number four. I think there's a big difference between being a bad Christian and being a pure hypocrite. The truth is, is you're on a journey if you're following Jesus, and so am I. Somewhere between being justified and being glorified, I'm being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit that has residence in me and the truth from God's word preached and heard and responded to pulls me more in the direction of where God would want me to go, and he's cleaning me up, and he's still working on me, and that's true for you too. So if there are seasons in your life, if there are days and mornings and perhaps weeks or months where you don't look and sound very Christian, it's not that it can be easily dismissed, but it is understandable. It's part of the journey. And the reality of you knowing that is supposed to call you to a place of repentance and prayer where God can work on you. And for the people who claim to be Christians, who you would look at and perhaps say they're hypocrites, God has them on a similar journey. And it could be that maybe they're not through and through hypocrites. It could just be they're immature baby Christians. Now, can I say the challenge I have as a pastor sometimes? I keep making the same mistake over and over on this point. I keep thinking that people who've been in church for 20 years are 20 years old as a Christian. Not true. Sometimes I think somebody's been in church for 50 years, then they're 50 years old in maturity as a Christian. Not true. I've known Christians who've been in church for 20 years, and it's like they've had 21-year birthday parties. One-year-old birthday parties. They've been doing the same. The truth is there's immature and bad Christians. And I've been one of them. I'm probably going to be one again. I don't want to admit it. I'm not claiming it. I don't want it, but it's likely. That's why John writes it. If I confess my sins, he's faithful and just. Now, this shouldn't discourage you. The fact that we're on a journey means that God has taken you somewhere. So I'm not quite what I ought to be, and I'm certainly not what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. God's growing me and changing me and working on me. Let me be honest with you. I think I've only met a handful of true hypocrites in my 30 years of being on staff or as a pastor. I've been a Christian since I was about five, as best as a five-year-old can understand it. I think I've only met about five. And I don't know, I just make up that. I haven't met many, but I've met a lot of people who are walking in willful disobedience. And then at some point, they respond to the call and conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they come back. Were they hypocrites? Well, I, I guess, technically, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Were they? I've met a lot of Christians with bad attitudes. I've met people in the church who were mean. Are they hypocrites? 
Here's what I've discovered. When their brokenness and their sin impacts me in a negative way, I call them hypocrites. And when their brokenness and sin doesn't particularly touch my life, I call them a project. I'm praying for them. I don't know how you do it. Who do you call a hypocrite? I think it's important to think through because if this is the conversation that people outside our doors are having about us, we probably really want to understand it and take it seriously. Let me tell you what I think is at the root of a lot of hypocrisy. Number five, I think fear and the need for approval are at the heart of a lot of hypocrisy we see in the church. Now, there's a third one that to me is a bit obvious, sometimes just selfishness. Sometimes people are just selfish. It's true. You've been there. I've been there. Sometimes Christians are selfish. And when they are, it can run amok, run unchecked, and then we're in a pattern of hypocrisy. But a lot of time, I think there's fear and the need for approval. And so we promote and act in one way because we're afraid of whatever else is going to say if we were to take off the mask and be sincere, without wax, authentic. And so we don't sit in our small group and say, here's the truth. I just don't respect my husband. Listen, I got to buy it. Honestly, my mom doesn't respect my dad. I don't respect my husband. And at the core of whom I am, my natural tendency is I'm just not a respectful wife. People don't want to do that. And so they tell other kinds of stories. And people don't sit in a small group and say, here's the deal. I'm struggling with lust. Like, I think I have the monster beat. And the next thing you know, I'm three clicks further than I want to be on the internet. I, I think, like, the truth is, guys, I'm struggling with lust. I, I don't think people want to have conversations like that. So instead, they have other kinds of conversations. And so there's a fear sometimes that makes a person project or act or play act. It happens in church all the time because we hold such a high bar. By the way, the reason this subject matters at all is because the standard is high. If the standard were low, we wouldn't care about hypocrites. It wouldn't matter. Like if somebody was a hypocrite about changing the oil in their car. I change my oil all the time. I use only the best oil. I use premium oil. You don't care one bit if they change their oil or not. And if you discover they haven't changed their oil for eight years, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But when the stakes are high and the standards are big, it's a really big deal to talk. And so in churches, sometimes fear and the need for approval. So people talk about what they've given and what they've done and where they've served and how they are. So number six then. I think hypocrisy dies, or let me say it this way, it begins to die. When you find your real identity and worth, not in your performance, but in God's grace. Not in your performance, either real performance or the pretend performance or the performance you hope people believe, but truly in the grace of God. You you don't have to prop up something else. Now, when there's just selfishness at work, and that's what's fueling the hypocrisy and you know that you're being, you know, a, a taker as opposed to a giver. You're taking as opposed to investing. Then that's a different kind of story when those kinds of cycles hang on forever and forever and forever. When there's a cycle of hypocrisy. But let me tell you what's the problem there. The problem isn't the hypocrisy alone. But let me tell you what hypocrisy does to your heart if you're a follower of Jesus. The Bible says that God gives us the Holy Spirit in our heart in part to convict us of our sin, to convince us that we belong to God and to direct us in the path that we should go. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the scripture to us. So the the scripture is truth, but God makes the truth real to us. So what happens to a person who's turning their back on what they know to be true and they're careless about it and it persists is those receptors, those spirit receptors get burned. They get corroded. They don't fire the way they're supposed to. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans, his book to the Christians in Rome, chapter 3, where he says, there's a way to turn off listening to God that ultimately will result in a hard heart. So when you say no to the conviction of God on the small things, don't be surprised if one day you wake up and realize you're doing big things you never thought you would do, but you never felt bad about it because your conscience 
has been seared. You'll find yourself telling lies you never thought you would tell, doing things with people you never thought you would do. But hypocrisy dies, begins to die, when you find your real identity and worth, not in your performance, but in God's grace. Number seven. The church is not full of hypocrites, by the way. Look around the room, by the way. There's some empty seats here. There's still plenty of room left for many of them at 4C. And I want them. I want them here. I want a church full of hypocrites who are bowing their knee to God saying, God, I don't want to be like this anymore. And I want some who are not yet ready to do that, but through our preaching and through our loving and through the move of the Spirit, as the worship lifts their eyes to the Lord and off of themselves, they begin to move away from engagement of hypocrisy to engagement as a disciple who's growing and becoming. So yeah, the church is full of hypocrites and thieves and liars and adulterers. And so to condemn the church for having hypocrites is like condemning a hospital for having sick people. I wouldn't go in that building over there. They're full of sick people. You don't tell that to somebody who needs to go in the emergency room. You don't do that. Now, one of my favorite theologians, his name's Kevin Hart, short little African-American guy. He said, not going to church because of hypocrites is like not going to the gym because of fat people. Of course we have hypocrites. Our whole mission, our whole mission is to bring the gospel to the world as well as help Christians grow in their faith. It's the two sides of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples and then teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey. By the way, when we teach, we have to be careful. I was reminded of this this week. We have to be careful that we don't want to just teach some information. I'm not just trying to get you to understand hypocrisy or hypocrites. I'm trying to move us, move you, move myself towards more obedience to Christ. I mean, the antidote to hypocrisy is the lordship of Jesus. It's knowing how far grace has pulled you and willing to go as far as grace wants to take you. That's the antidote. It's not trying harder. It's throwing yourself at the feet of a merciful Savior who said, I came to save people just like you and just like them, the ones that have hurt you and those that have not. Number eight, hypocrites do not ultimately discredit the truth of the gospel. If one day you discover I'm a hypocrite, like through and through, nothing redeeming about me, that doesn't in any way besmirch the character of Jesus and the claims of the gospel. It may hurt. The man who was instrumental in my family's life and bringing my family to Jesus, God used him more than any other person later in life, had a real struggle. And when I discovered it, man, it hurt. And I had to be reminded that I wasn't called to follow a person. I was called to follow Jesus. Number nine, avoiding the church because of hypocrites, in my opinion, is hypocritical. Here's why. Jesus never said, follow my people. He never said that. He never said, follow my people. He said, follow me. Every Christian you've ever known this side of heaven is likely to disappoint and discourage and hurt every single one. That's why Jesus said of himself, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He was speaking to that basic fear everybody has that somehow I'm going to be left alone. I'm going to be taken advantage of. I'm going to be walking the journey. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to be by myself. Jesus said, no matter what anybody else does, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he was building credibility to the fact that he's not like his followers. He's a step above. He said, follow me. Don't follow my people. Let me give you five suggestions for moving away from hypocrisy. It's a big deal for the church what people talk about. But it needs to move from a conversation about those people in another place and another time to a conversation about us. And that's what I'm trying to do here. Number one, I think self-awareness, self-awareness is a big part of dealing with hypocrisy. I found that self-awareness precedes spiritual growth. Self-awareness 
precedes professional growth. Self-awareness precedes personal growth. It's very difficult to help somebody who doesn't see the issue that you see that you're trying to help them with. Try to convince your kids to do the homework before, get the paper done before it's due. It's three weeks to the assignment. They've got all the time in the world. You should take this free time you have and work on that paper that's due in three weeks. That's not an issue for them. You can beg and plead all day long. Now, you may be able to force them, but they don't, they don't see it as an issue. You know why? It's not due yet. Very difficult. You ever, ever tried to help somebody who didn't want to be helped? Some of you have people in your family, in your extended network. They've struggled with chemical addiction, and you tried to help them. You saw, you knew where it was going to go, but they didn't know it yet. They were blinded to their own reality. It's very hard Self-awareness is a gift. I, I could have called this, by the way, spirit awareness. What would God say to you about what he would like to work on in your life? Search my heart, O oh God, David prayed. Search me. See if there be any wicked way. That's a pretty dangerous prayer to pray, but it gets to the heart of self-awareness. Number two, authenticity. Who are you when no one's looking? Not in your notes, but I love this in James. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the Christians over which he has responsibility, and he says, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. Don't just hear it. Do it. There has to be a connection. Who you are when nobody's looking probably says as much about who you really are as anything else. And the Lord already knows, by the way, that what's done in secret will be rewarded openly, that you've never had a secret thought, action, word, behavior that God hasn't seen, even though you can fool a lot of people. You can keep up a facade. But the danger isn't the facade alone, although that's dangerous, and it isn't the impact it's going to have on other people, although when you get found out, there are going to be people hurt. The danger is what it's doing to your heart in the process. You're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. Authenticity requires that you wrestle and you struggle with your gaps. This is hard to do. It requires an incredible amount of boldness to say bold prayers and to press into your gap. It requires, number three, repentance. And this is a word that has fallen out of favor. But it's a powerful, biblical, and beautiful word. Repentance is genuine brokenness before God for your personal sin, for the impact it's had on you and on others. It's more than a feeling. You can repent without deep feelings, but it's often, it's often accompanied by deep feelings of remorse. God, I can't believe I went and did that. I can't believe I did it again. And it's a genuineness of a commitment to turn away from it, not just acknowledge it. And I want to tell you that Christians are called to repentance often. It's one of the ways that God keeps us on the path. And God would prefer, I can tell you the heart of God on this matter. He would prefer to correct you when things are small. So that before lust, for instance, has taken full form in your life, he preferred to direct you when you noticed your eyes going in the wrong place for too long. And that whisper of the Spirit that says, you know, you, sh you shouldn't do that. He'd much rather correct that because that's going to save you and the people you care about a world of hurt versus you ignoring that, ignoring it, ignoring it. And the next thing you know, you're flirting with somebody in your office. But the problem with hypocrisy is the receptors that tune you in. Number four. I think you should fixate on one hypocrite and fix that hypocrite, and it's you. <laughs> I have found I'm really, really bad at fixing hypocrites. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at, I'm not very good at growing Christians up who don't want to grow. I'm not. I can't fix other people. <laughs> I learned about three years into my ministry, I can't save a single person. You would think I'd know that on the front end. I can't save a single person. I can't but I can walk humbly before my God. And so can you. And you can look in the mirror and say, God, 
Hi, my name's Ben, and I'm a hypocrite, and I need you to restore, heal, fix, confront, convict, encourage me. Because I need it. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to go down those roads. Jesus, this was his whole point in that whole thing about judge not. You see the plank in your brother's, or the the speck in your brother's eye, but you can't see the speck of, of sawdust in your own. You can see a two by four in your friend's eye, but you can't see a speck of sawdust in your own. Fix the hypocrite you have responsibility for, and it's you. And in church leadership, there are other things. I mean, on occasion, we have to confront, and church discipline's a big deal. We're actually going to talk about that before too long, and so it's a big deal, but you can start with you. Number five, I think one of the greatest gifts the Lord gives us this side of heaven is true friends. True friends who, when they see you going a little off, can say to you, hey, love you. Love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. I got to talk to you about something. And I think the enemy would love to offer you counterfeit friendships that will always connect to your emotions, but never connect you to the truth. You have friends like that? Like if you're sad, they're sad. You're mad, they're mad. If you want to fight somebody, they'll go fight them for you. Those are the beginnings of good friendships. But good friends tell us the truth too. Now, who should have access to tell you the truth, kind of unfiltered? Not everybody. Not everybody's your friend. Not everybody has good intention for you. But people who have a proven track record of being for you over time, if they come to you, you probably want to listen to them. You probably want to take their words seriously. People who don't, you can filter that. You might even need a boundary on occasion. But true friends who can speak the truth in love, they'll help you. And I don't know that we'll ever solve the challenge of hypocrites in the church. But let me tell you what you can do. You can solve the problem of one less hypocrite in your home. You can solve that one. And you can solve the problem of one less hypocrite in our church, which would be good for all of us. I'm going to work on solving the one that sometimes stands on this stage. And I wonder what, I wonder what God might would want to do with you. Let me tell you one last thing about this. You know what's at stake here? Two big things. I've been focusing on one of them a lot. Your heart before God. But there's another thing at stake here. Your life shines on other people. And you know people right now who have been hurt by the perceived and real hypocrisy of others. And your life can stand in stark contrast to that. You can literally rewrite somebody's opinion of the church by how you live your life with integrity before the Lord. You can do that. So your own heart and the impact of your life. Let's take out our connect cards and take some steps together. If you're our guest, this is where we pull out our card and we try to move forward and not just be a hearer of the word and be stirred, but actually put a plan in place. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you'd like to commit your life to Christ today, I want you to know that he takes you no matter where you've been. If you've been a hypocrite, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, or a pretty good person relying on your own good works. He takes it all, and he says, I'll take all of that, and instead, I'll give you my righteousness. The Bible says mechanically, this is how it works. You acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you cannot save yourself, and you trust the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection to secure your relationship to your Heavenly Father. You trust him that alone. If you want to do that, I ask you to take your pen and check next step A that says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. You'll put it in the offering bucket in a few minutes. We'll pray about it as well, and we'll send you some information about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We'd love for you to follow him here in this place with us. We'll do our best to encourage you and live honestly and with integrity in front of you. But I got to tell you, we're, we're becoming people. We're not all the way there yet. But if joining up for a journey like that sounds awesome to you, not only can you come to Jesus... We'd like for you to live your life here with him as well, as long as the Lord would have you here. Our next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Baptism's a really big deal around here. It's the beginning point often of somebody's journey. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. They don't go, wait to get baptized after everything's clean. No, they go under the waters in hopes that the spirit that saved them will also clean them up over time and take them to heaven, where ultimately they're going to be made perfect in the image of Christ. Next step C is a pretty bold prayer. Maybe you can pray it with me. 
it says, God help me to align my walk with my belief that you are in charge of my life. I'm going to pray this every morning. God, help me to align my walk with my belief that you're the Lord and I'm not. You're God and I'm not. I'm going to start my morning with that every morning. And if you'll check the box, I'll send you the prayer. You can pray it along with me. Next step, D says, hey, who would, who would like to do this? Help me pray for a friend who has a thing with church, like something happened. And we're going to pray for God to open a door for their hearts to be touched. I'm just going to pray for them. It's a big deal. The enemy has been very successful to take this topic and turn a lot of people. I just want to pray for them. So if there's somebody specific, you can, if you want, write their name down or just check the box and I'll pray with you. I've got some people on my list that I'm praying for that God would take what they think to be true and often has been true and keep that from being a block between them and engaging the truth of the gospel. The next step, B says, send me a link to sign up for Grow One, which is membership. You'll notice, those of you who are regular Four Corners attenders, that your Connect card is slightly different today, the first change in about four years. But there's a box for the Grow classes. You can either check E or the box under the Grow uh, column. Either way, and we'll get you that link this week so that you can be at our event next Sunday night, all right? I want you to set your Connect card aside right now. And if you call this church home, we're preparing at this point to give back to God some of the money he's blessed us with. So if you've been blessed this week, this is your opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. If you dropped off your kids in our elementary section of the building, you saw there's some drywall going up and some other work that's happened this week. There'll be more next week. We get to do that because you've been faithful. You've given, you've been generous, you've been kind. You've given out of the abundance that God's blessed you with and you've given back a portion to his work. You should know that we're doing that here we're doing that around the world in India. Next week, Will and I will share with you some of the challenges that James going, is going through and how we can pray for him. It's both an opportunity and some pretty exciting uh, or difficult challenges. Exciting opportunities some pretty difficult challenges. We want to tell you about it and recruit your prayers to help us there. But the only reason we get to help those 40 girls and build that campus in Kerala, India, is because you've been faithful. So thank you. Your giving is making a practical difference. Let's pray about our next steps in our offering right now. Father, thank you for being the God who takes in hypocrites, who restores, who redeems, who heals, who makes good where there's ugly, brings beautiful things out of broken things. Today, Lord, we bow our heads and we confess that at times in our own lives and certainly at times in the history of the church, hypocrisy has had too much of a reign. And we ask you, Father, to forgive us to embolden us to ask hard questions of ourselves, to be open to your Spirit's guidance, to seek out how you would have us to grow and to change. We want to be made more into the image of your Son. Conform us into your likeness, Father. Lord, I lift up those that are declaring right now, Jesus, wash away my sins. I have nothing to bring. I trust only in the cross and the resurrection, the, the work of Jesus. I trust in that alone to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. Father, I want to thank you for each next step. I want to thank you for each dollar given today. God, would you help them to go far and wide, both of these steps of obedience. Help us to go far and wide, to bring you glory, to honor your name, and to experience all that you have for us. Continue to provide the resources we need to get done what you've called us to do. We pray this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy Son. Amen and amen.